beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think many of the children know where butterflies come from, right? You, you start with a caterpillar. A caterpillar crawls around, doesn't it, and eats leaves. Butterflies fly, and they drink nectar. It's an amazing thing what God does. He changes a caterpillar into a butterfly, goes into a cocoon for a while, and then there's this massive transformation that happens, a metamorphosis. And then out comes a butterfly. It's glorious. What happens when you take a butterfly and try to stuff it back in the cocoon? What would happen? It wouldn't be pretty, would it? You're not supposed to do that. Well, that's what's happening in the time when Paul writes the letter to the Galatians. People are trying to go back to where they shouldn't be going, and it's not pretty. Paul writes to the churches of Galatia, chapter 2, and these are the churches which he, he planted in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14, if you, I'll try to do this map backwards here in a mirror image so it looks right for you. If you have the, the Mediterranean Sea and you have um, the Black Sea up there, you have the Mediterranean Sea down here, and in between you have Turkey, and then you have Cyprus, that, that island in the Mediterranean in the north of it, and just straight north of Cyprus, modern-day Turkey, that's where the churches of Galatia were. Just you go up from the Mediterranean Sea, you go over these mountain ranges, the Taurus Mountains, and then you're in this area where the Galatian churches were. And so if, if you read Acts chapter 13 and 14, you have uh, Paul going up to, 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 to Cyprus, then he goes up to, to the other Antioch, the Antioch that's in Pisidia, that's in Galatia, and then he goes from Antioch to Iconium to Lystra and to Derby. And then he goes back, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and then he goes back to, to Antioch in Syria, which is where his home church is based. And so if you read Acts 13 to 14, that, that work was hard work. Because beginning in Antioch, he gets persecuted and opposed by the Jews. And they, they throw him out of one city, he goes to the next one, they follow him and they harass him. And then he goes to, to Lystra, and the people from Antioch in Iconium actually come there and incite the crowds, and he actually gets stoned so that he's left for dead. Think about that. Paul pays the price to plant a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gets rocks thrown at him so that he's so beaten up that he's unconscious and he's left for dead. That's what our brother Paul was willing to do to plant churches. What are we willing to do to plant churches? And then, well, he got stoned at Lystra. Then he went to Derby. And then he goes back. He goes back to the city where he was stoned. And he goes back to Iconium. And he goes back to Antioch, the cities where he was violently opposed. And he goes back because he's strengthening the churches and he's appointing elders. And he's doing the work of the church the work of the kingdom, the work of the gospel, in the face of the most violent hatred and opposition of the kingdom of darkness. And then he goes back to, let me see, it'll be on this side for you. He goes back through the Mediterranean to 
Antioch and Syria, which is just north up the coast from, from Israel. So what did Paul preach to these Galatian churches? What was the gospel that he taught them from the beginning? Well, if you, if you turn to Acts chapter 13, 38, you see what he told them. This is the gospel that they heard. Acts 13, 38, 39. He's preaching here in the Antioch that's up there in, in Galatia. And he says, Acts 13, 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And now pay attention. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. From everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So what, what was the gospel he preached to the Galatian churches? He says, Christ gives freedom that the law couldn't give. Christ gives freedom from guilt. Christ gives freedom from condemnation. And what happened when the Galatians believed that message? Well, look at Acts 13, verse 52. Acts 13, 52. What happened? And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So Jews and Gentiles, everybody that accepted and embraced the gospel that was preached by Paul... They were filled with joy and filled the Holy Spirit. That means they participated in the power of Pentecost. It means they became the temple of the living God. Because that spirit that used to be veiled away and stuck in the Holy of Holies and not accessible, he came and lived in them. The law, the law said, you're bad. Stay out. Stay away from a holy God. Don't come too close. You're going to die. And the law said, animals have to be sacrificed. Blood has to be shed because you, you deserve to die. And one day, there will be a sacrifice which will actually wash away your sins. But it's not this one. Come back tomorrow. It's not this one either. Come back again. And every sacrifice said the same thing. It hasn't been dealt with yet. Not yet. That's what the law said. The gospel said something radically different. The gospel said, come on in. Come home. You are welcome in the presence of a holy God. The Lamb of God has died. The blood which really cleans away sin has been shed. The debt has been paid. The curtain has been ripped. The way is open into the holy of holies. Come on in. Because it's all over. It's been dealt with. It's been fixed. You want the proof? You want the evidence of that? God <clears throat> comes to live in your heart. Well, the law, the law said, you're a sinner. You can't come into his presence. You can't come into his temple. The gospel said, it's all dealt with. You are God's presence in the world. You are God's temple. He lives in you. You 
live in him. That's the powerful message of Pentecost. The victory, the glory of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's a really radical difference, isn't it, between what the law was saying and what the gospel said. And so you can understand why Paul in verse 6 of Galatians 1 is so astonished. He says, listen, you heard all these good news. And I'm astonished that you're quickly deserting this God who has welcomed you in to his presence by grace. And Paul is really worked up in this letter. If you read through the letter, he's angry. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? What's wrong with you? And look at chapter 5, verse 12. Paul is speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But still really on the edge here. 5 verse 12, he says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. They're so fixated on cutting off a little piece of skin to make you like the Jews. I wish they would go the whole way and cut everything off for themselves. Like Paul's pretty, pretty brutal in his words here, in his language. And then, of course, we read the last part of the of the book, chapter 6, verse 11 to the end. He says, see with what large letters I'm writing with my own hand. And then he, he doesn't do the usual thing where you just write one sentence and you kind of sign your name, but he goes into an, another little sermon at the end in his own handwriting. So Paul is very, very upset. Why is he so upset? Well, because the Galatians are turning to a different gospel. It, it appears that people have come to these churches in Galatia and they've started spreading rumors. They've said, you know, Paul, you can't trust him. You can't trust the messenger. And you can't trust the message he preached. He, he's just a man. And he's sharing a man's ideas. Maybe he wasn't the best student. Maybe he didn't understand the apostles, the real apostles. Because he's not really one of the original ones, you know. So we can tell you the truth. This is the way things have got to be. This is the way things have been actually for 1,500 years in the people of God. You have to be circumcised to be saved. You have to be under the law. You, there are all these rituals and ceremonies for you to be able to come a little bit closer to God. And that's the way things have been. And that's what it looks like for you guys as well. Don't be changing things now. And so in, in this letter... Paul does three things, and very, very roughly, we'll, we'll go uh, two chapters by two chapters. He, he does three things. He defends his ministry and his message in chapters one and two. And then he shows in chapters three and four that, that being under the law doesn't work. It's only being in Christ by faith that makes us right with God. So that's chapters three and four mostly. And then in chapters five and six, he deals with an objection. Because people say, well, if we get rid of the law, then who's going to tell us when we're wrong? Who's going to tell us, don't do this and don't do that? People are just going to sin. And so in chapters 5 and 6, Paul deals with this objection, and he shows that the gospel does not promote sin, but the gospel promotes holiness. And so the first thing then in chapters 1 and most of chapter 2, Paul is defending his ministry and his message. Look at verse 1. He says, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ 
Paul an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So this is not a, this is not a human calling that I have. And look at verse 11 and verse 12 of chapter 1. He says, this is not man's gospel I've been preaching. I got this as a revelation of Christ. Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. God revealed his son to me. So I got this straight from God. I'm a real apostle. Now, what is an apostle? An apostle is an eyewitness of the resurrection. An apostle is someone who can, who can testify, I know that Jesus died but that he also rose again and that he lives. And Paul qualifies to be an apostle because he saw, he met the risen and living Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And the risen and living Christ spoke to him and called him to be a preacher and poured out his spirit on him to ordain him to be a witness to the ends of the earth. And so what Paul says in chapters 1 and 2 is basically this. Listen, I don't depend on those guys in Jerusalem, those other apostles, for my understanding. I don't need them to correct me. I've got a direct line to God, to Jesus Christ himself. And in fact, I don't need them to set me straight. I set them straight. And that's what he says in chapter 2, verses 11 through to 14. If you look at 2, 11, 14, then he mentions this uh, moment when, when Peter, Cephas, Peter came to Antioch and he kind of wobbled a little bit because, because there were some people from the circumcision party that said, no, 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 everybody, even the Gentiles have to keep all the laws of Moses. And when they came to Antioch, Peter, who had been fellowshipping with the Gentiles and spending time in their houses and eating and drinking with them, he suddenly stayed away from the Gentiles and started acting like the Jews used to act in the Old Testament, that they couldn't have anything to do with people who were not Jews, who were not circumcised. And, Peter, and Paul says to Peter, you're wrong. You stand condemned. Shame on you. You're denying the gospel. You have to change. So that was Paul's uh, defense then of his ministry and message in chapters 1 and 2. And then he goes on in chapters 3 and 4 to deal with the question of how can you be justified? How can you be declared righteous? How can you be right with God? How can, <clears throat> how can everything be okay between you and God? How can you come into his presence as a sinner without getting consumed by his holiness? I mean, we know what sin does, right? We remember that from Genesis. When man sinned, when woman sinned, they were kicked out of the garden. They were expelled from the holy of holies because sin cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. So how do we get back? How do we get back home? How do we get back to the presence of God? Well, there are two options. And the two options that Paul presents are on the first hand, and on the one hand, under the law, being under the law, and on the other hand, being in Christ. And Paul, in chapters 3 and 4 especially, he says, you know, only one of them works. Only one of these options is a valid option. And the one that doesn't work is the under the law option. So look at chapter 2, verse 15. He says, listen, we who are Jews, we know, we know that the law doesn't work. I mean, we've had 1,500 years since the time of Moses of experience, and we know that you cannot 
be justified by keeping all of the rules of the law. I mean, Paul had been one of the best at keeping the rules. But he knows by experience that the only way to have a clean conscience and to know that you're a forgiven sinner is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so we know that, he says. We know that it's only when you're united to Christ by faith, when you've been crucified with Christ, when your identity is in Christ, when it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. You're in him, he's in you, you're united to him by faith. That's what works, being in Christ. And then Paul says, you know, listen, if, if, if it was possible to be right with God by following all the rules, then why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus suffer? Why did Jesus die? What a waste of time and effort that would have been. And so you see in verse 21 of chapter 2, if, I, if, I, if, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That's very important. If we insist on saying you've got to do the right things to be acceptable to God, then we're basically saying, we're basically trashing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're saying, what a waste of time that Jesus came and died. He didn't need to. We just need to be good people, and then everything's going to be okay. So, so Paul says in, in, in the end of chapter 2, you know, we know as Jews that doesn't work. But then he says, but you also know you Gentiles, you guys who aren't Jews, you remember, and he, he does that in the beginning of chapter 3. He says, what happened when you believed? Well, you were filled. We read that, right? We talked about that, Acts 13, 52. You were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So what did it take for you to go from someone who didn't know God, who was under God's judgment because you were a sinner, to being someone who was a temple of God, a son of God, a daughter of God, in whom the living God dwelt by his spirit. What made that happen? Was it because you spent a long time doing all the rituals of the law? No. It happened when you simply heard the gospel and believed the gospel and embraced the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And that's the way the gospel works, and that's the way the gospel has always worked. And so he says in the beginning of chapter 3, look at verse 6, for instance, he, says, he points to Abraham. Well, Abraham's in the Old Testament. But how was Abraham accounted righteous? Well, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. When that is said in Genesis, Abraham wasn't even circumcised yet. The whole system of ceremonies and sacrifices of the law didn't even exist yet. Abraham simply heard the promises of God, and he believed them. And God said, you know what? It's all okay between me and you. You are acceptable. You are my friend. You are righteous. God said, I'm going to bless the nations through you. You see that in verse 8 of chapter 3. And in Genesis, he says that many, many times, there are multiple times that God makes his promise. All the peoples, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So how do you share in that blessing? Well, says Paul, by sharing in Abraham's faith. By having faith in the Messiah in whom Abraham had faith. 
or having faith in the Christ in whom Abraham also put his trust. And as he goes on in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul deals with the people that say, yes, yes, but the law, the law. And Paul says in verse 10 of chapter 3, you want law? Well, you know what the law gives? It gives you curse. That's all the law can offer. Well, I mean, if you could keep it perfectly, it would work, but, but no one can keep it perfectly. If you, if you don't keep it in every detail, you are cursed. And so the law doesn't save. The law doesn't make things okay between you and God. The law just serves one purpose. It tells people that they are sinners and that they need the Messiah. They need the Christ. You see, the law is like an x-ray. You take a million x-rays. It's never going to heal the tumor, the cancer. The the x-ray will tell you there's something wrong. You need help. But the solution then is not to get another x-ray because it's just going to tell you the same thing. You need medicine. You need surgery. You need a doctor. And so the, the law tells people they deserve death. And in Romans, Paul develops this a little bit more in detail. But the Gentiles had a faint idea of the law. It was written on their hearts and their conscience But the Jews, with the Ten Commandments and all the rest of the Torah given on Sinai, they really learned it well. And as Paul says to the Romans, the more you know the law, the more you realize your sin. And so, in 3.19, he explains what the function of the law was. It was a temporary thing. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. What is Paul talking about? Well, he's saying this. The law of Moses from Sinai to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, about 1,500 years, the law said this. In every ceremony, in every sacrifice, in every ritual, the law said you are a sinner, you are bad, you can't come into the Holy of Holies, you can't live in the presence of God. Someone has to die for your sin, and it hasn't happened yet because there's going to be another sacrifice tomorrow. So the law drove home the need. The law incited the longing for the promised descendant. Well, who is that promised descendant? Who is the offspring to whom the promise had been made? Well, remember Genesis 3.15, where God promises that there will be a descendant of the woman who will come and will crush the head of the snake will destroy the power of sin and Satan. And so that's what the law is doing. It was saying you need Christ. You need the Messiah. You need Jesus. You need the one who will deal with sin and who will make everything right again. So at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, Paul uses an example to describe the difference between being in the Old Testament under the law of Moses and being in the New Testament church under the grace of Christ. And he uses something which was well known to the people of that time, but which we don't know. He speaks about the church being a child under a tutor or a guardian. And this is how it worked for families in the Roman Empire, for the Greeks, but especially for the the, the Romans even more. The kids would spend a lot of hours in school every day way more hours than we do today. 
And if they didn't know the lessons, they would get beaten. Because the idea was that if somebody's afraid of getting hurt, they're going to study harder. It wasn't a nice time to live for kids. And so the children would have a pedagogue. That's the word that's used in the text in the Greek. It's a pedagogue, a guide, a tutor. As long as they hadn't matured, as long as they hadn't developed their own self-control and come of age, they lived under this tutor. This tutor was a slave, but this tutor could give them a good rap across the knuckles if they didn't listen and would walk with them to school, make sure they did their stuff. So they were under authority. And they had to live under rules and under threats. And even if the parents died and the child, the minor child, inherited this huge estate, it wouldn't make any difference. Until they came of age, they would be under authority. Little different than a slave until they became an adult. So Paul says, you know what? That's what the Old Testament church was. The Old Testament church was a child. It lived under rules. It was always being told what to do. It didn't, it didn't do things out of itself like an adult does. It did things because it was told to do them like a child. Because a child needs rules. And Paul says the New Testament church in Christ is an adult. It doesn't need the rules of childhood. Because an adult, hopefully, if they've grown up properly, have internalized the spirit of those rules that we learned as children. And as adults, we live by the spirit of what our parents taught us when we were kids. So, so if you're in your 30s, you don't call your mom every night and say, Mom, what time is my bedtime? Because that's when you were a kid, your mom told you what time to go to bed. But when you're an adult, you, you take the principles of your childhood and what your parents were trying to teach you, that you should go to bed on time so that you can get your sleep for your health because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and so that you can be faithful in your duties so that you come to work or to school ready and refreshed to do your work well. And those internal lessons are now uh, implemented in our lives as adults of our own free volition and not because of rules and regulations. And so... Paul says, listen, that's what's happened to us. Under the law, we were a little more than slaves. But in Christ, we are mature children of God through faith. Look at verse 26 of chapter 3. And that means that all those little details and rules about how to worship God and who can come, how close, and how often, those rules are all gone. Because everyone has free access at every time. So when he looks at, when you look at verse 28 of chapter 3, he says it's neither Jew nor Greek, slave, free, male, female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the restrictions of the old covenant, which gave different rights for access to God to Jews than Greeks had. Slaves had certain rights. Free people had more rights. Males had more rights than females. Priests had more than non-priests. And so there are all these distinctions and Paul says, you know what? They're all gone. That's from when we were kids. But now we're mature in Christ. The church has grown up. And then in chapter 4, verse 21 to the end of the chapter, Paul makes this point. He says, you know, this whole thing about being under the law or by being, or being in Christ, those two things cannot exist together in the church. They are mutually exclusive. And he uses the example of Isaac and Ishmael. You remember how <clears throat> Abraham had a son by his slave 
Hagar, and that was Ishmael. And then later on, the son of the promise was born, who would be from the holy line of the woman, that was Isaac. And they didn't get along. And Sarah saw that. She saw how Ishmael was bullying Isaac and mocking him. And Paul says, you know what? One of them had to go. These two boys couldn't be together. So the slave woman and her son had to be sent away. They couldn't live together under one roof. And so Paul says, listen, with this whole question about whether we're under the law or in Christ, you've got to pick one. These are not two teachings which can coexist in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only one of them can exist. And so you've got to pick one. Either the church is under the power of the thundering condemnation of Sinai and the law, or the church is under the renewing and heavenly power of Pentecost. Under law or in Christ, you've got to pick one. And Paul makes the point that under law is what you do. It's all about what you do. But in Christ is all about who you are. There's a big difference. And so choose wisely, Paul says. And he goes on in chapter 5, verse 3. He says, listen, if you choose the under law option, you've got to know this. If you get circumcised, then you have to go with the whole package. You've got to keep all the rules, all the rituals, all the ceremonies, all the law. And you won't be able to. And so the only thing you're going to get is condemnation and curse. And when you choose this option, you know what you've done? Look at verse 4 of chapter 5. You've cut yourself off from Christ. You're dead because you've cut yourself from him who is life. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. You've, you've turned your back on God all over again. There's just, just like Adam and Eve fell in the, in the garden. You've gone and fallen all over again. You know what you're trying to do? Well, Paul doesn't use this example, but when, when you try to go back to law after you've known the grace of God in Christ, then what you're trying to do is take this beautiful, exquisite, delicate butterfly and stuff it into that shell, that cocoon, which had its use in its time, but is now just fit to be thrown away. And what you're going to get when you stuff a butterfly into a cocoon is you're going to get butterfly guts all over the place. That's all you're going to get. And so Paul defended his ministry's message in chapters 1 and 2. He, he presents the, the teaching of the gospel about how we're declared righteous in chapters 3 and 4. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he deals with the question of, well, doesn't grace promote sin? I mean, if we get rid of the law, people are just going to do what they want. And so he deals with that in chapters Five and six, especially from uh, verse 16 of chapter 5 and on. So people say, you know what? If, if the law is not there telling us we're bad and we shouldn't do this and we shouldn't do that, then people are just going to do bad things. And Paul says, well, what's the solution to that? He says, you know what? You walk by the Spirit, you're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. You know why? Well, look at verse 17. Because the desires of the flesh are opposed to the desires of the Spirit. You see, the law is against the works of the flesh. The law is against sin, but all the law can say is it's bad, it's bad, you're going to die. But the Spirit is against sin too. But in a different way. You see, you see, the law says 
don't do those bad things or you're going to get punished. You're going to get it. You better not do that. But the Spirit says, you don't want to do that. That's not who you are. You don't find that desirable. Because you're like Jesus. You love God and you love God's will. And that's simply not who you are. I'm not interested. Those who walk by the Spirit, that's what they say. When sin comes knocking on the door, those who walk by the Spirit, they say, I'm sorry, I'm just not interested. That's not who I am. And so verse 18, if we're led by the Spirit, we're not under the law. Well, why not? Because if we're in the Spirit, if we're in Christ by faith, then the law is no longer an external master threatening us, beating us, telling us we're bad. But when we're in Christ, the law is not something we're under. The law is something written on our hearts. Paul says that to the Corinthians in the second letter to the Corinthians chapter 3. The law is no longer your enemy. It's your friend. In fact, the law is your biography. The law is a description of your character. The law tells you that your identity is not sinner, but your identity is Christ. So what do we do when we see the works of the flesh in our life or in the lives of our children? You see those works of the flesh listed in verses 19 through to 21. And they're pretty nasty. And I think that some of them, you know, the anger, the fits of anger and the strife and the jealousy and the divisions and sometimes even the drunkenness and a lot of this stuff we see in our hearts, we see in our lives, we see in our families, we see in our church communities. These are very rotten and unpleasant things. How do, we, how do we stop them? How do we deal with them? How do we turn away from them? Well, it doesn't work to say, don't do it. We, we can try really hard. We can fake it. We can make other people believe that we're not given over to the works of the flesh, but that's never going to be the solution. It doesn't work. We can fake it, but we can't make it. See, the gospel says it's not by trying harder. It's not by working at being a better person, but it's being in Christ, which is the solution. It is being united with Christ by true faith in the Spirit. Paul said it already a few chapters ago. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And that massive change which the people of God went through in redemptive history, from under the law to in Christ, that massive change has to happen and has to be rehearsed in the life and the heart of each individual believer. We all need that metamorphosis. You see, it's no use to tell a caterpillar to stop eating leaves because that's what caterpillars do. It's not, there's no use to tell the caterpillar, stop crawling around, start flying. That's not, that's not the solution. You see, the caterpillar has to undergo a radical change in its nature. So it flies and so it sips nectar. You can wrap up the caterpillar. It'll stop crawling and eating leaves. But it needs a radical change of nature to do the things a butterfly does. And it's the same way with us, brothers and sisters. You know, we can wrap our kids, we can wrap ourselves in the law. 
Don't do this, don't do that. Try harder, work at this, work at not doing bad things, work harder at doing good things. And we might have some success in stopping some sin, but it's really not the solution, is it? Because what we need is a transformation. We need transformed minds. We need a new identity. We need new hearts. And that only works, that only happens with the miracle of regeneration, of new birth, when the Father and the Son come to make their home in us by the Spirit. So how do we know if that has happened? How do we know if we're walking by the Spirit, if we are temples of the Holy Spirit? Well, Look at verse 17 again. We know it when there is a battle. We know it because the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit are opposed to each other. So we know we're in Christ. We know we're walking in the spirit when we have a growing and a holy hatred for sin. Not because we, we don't try to stop sinning because we might get caught or because we don't like the consequences but we hate sin because it offends God's holy majesty and it doesn't fit with who we are. You see, the old nature says, I want to sin. And the new nature of the Spirit of Christ in us says, no thanks, I don't want to sin because that's not who I am. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 6. And note that Paul says that in this battle, we need a lot of empathy for each other. Because sin is sticky and gucky. And it clings and it's hard to scrub away. And sometimes the old nature gets the upper hand and it's a tough fight. And we fall flat in our face. And Paul says in chapter 6, verse 1, listen, if you're all spiritual, like if you're more advanced in sanctification, don't go full-blown Moses Mount Sinai and your brothers and sisters with threatenings and thunderings and lightnings and saying, you're a bad person, you did a bad thing. Paul says, you don't know this. If you're a little further in sanctification, that's not because you're so good. It's because... The Spirit of God has had mercy on you. He's at work in you. It's all grace. And so you need to be gentle with each other. Because right now your brother, your sister tripped up and messed up. But you could be the next one to fall on your face. So help each other out with empathy in this battle. And then the last thing he says is, is we need to invest. You need to invest in the winning party in this fight. Because you reap what you sow. It's a rule of the universe. You reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you reap eternal life. So you've got this battle going on in you between your old nature and your new nature, between the flesh and the spirit. Which one are you feeding? You see, if you fill your mind with worthless entertainment and pornographic images and the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, you're giving more ammunition to the old nature and to the enemy, and you're strengthening the enemy. That's crazy. And if you're not spending time in the Scripture, and in meditation on God's truths, and in godly conversation and prayer, then you're starving the new nature. So don't be surprised when you have difficulty overcoming the violent passions of your old nature, if you're hardly ever in the Word, if you're hardly ever spending time in prayer because you've got so many important things to do in your life, you reap what you sow. And that means you have to invest. You have to sow wisely and deliberately. <clears throat> 
So here's the question. Are you right with God? Does God love you? Does God accept you? And the gospel says, you know what? Stop trying so hard. Look at verse 15 of chapter 6. It's not being circumcised or not circumcised. It's not what you do or what you don't do. It's what you are. It's who you are. A new creation. Because when you're a new creation and you live in the power of the Spirit and you have a changed heart, then the renewing power of the age to come pours into your heart and into your life. If anyone is in Christ, he, she is a new creation. That's what the gospel says. So stop trying harder to not do bad things and and to do good things. But focus all your energy on Christ. Hold on to Christ. Hunger for Christ. Ask Christ to change you to be more like him. And know this. The Father loves you. Not because of what you do, but because of who you are. He sees his son in you. And he loves his son. And he loves you. He loves you because of who you are. And you are always welcome to come home. Amen.